Thank you very much. I am not the Kalava Rebbe. If you didn't realize by now you're in the wrong room, he's downstairs. I'm David Orlovsky. Uh, I am, to the best of my knowledge, a Litvak. I don't, it's really not fair. I'm a Pilisher. I, 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 my family comes from Warsaw. Um, uh, Hasidim have insisted that if I came from around Warsaw, I'm definitely a Gera Hasid. But, uh, thank you very much. But, uh, not that I know of. I, I do know I'm a Polish Yid. I know this because when uh, I had my, um, I was going to have my heart operation, so um, the doctor came to meet with my wife and children and myself, and he said, uh, Wednesday morning we're going to prep him, and we're going to wheel him in early in the morning. The surgery should take about five hours, and he'll be in intensive care unconscious for about two days. So he should wake up sometime on Friday morning. So my wife and my kids started discussing who's going to stay in the hospital. And I said, did you hear the man? I'm going to be unconscious. What are you standing here for? You're not going to be allowed in the room anyway. Go home. Come back on Friday. Tell me you stood by the door crying. I'll have no idea. <laughs> so the surgeon, who is, not, who is not from, he looks at me and he goes, a Polish Shayid. I didn't know they still had those. You know? And then I realized, yeah, my father would have said the same thing. So would my grandfather. They were always like, nah, whatever. Nah, 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 you know? That's how they made us back in Poland. You know, it was uh, it was a, a different approach. You know, um, we my father used uh, onion for carpas. and uh, I I went to day school. I came back and I said, no, Dad, you're supposed to use parsley. He says, my father used onion, we're using onion, I don't know what you're talking about. I found years later in the Haggadah of Yenis and Eibschitz, he says, for carpas you should use onion. And there are some people who use parsley, but I don't know what they're thinking, because nobody would eat parsley. Yeah, so, <laughs> one for my dad. And then my father used to eat chunks of horseradish. He would just take a chunk of horseradish, and that's what he ate for mother. Yeah, is it? So I came home and I said, Dad, you're not allowed to do that. You have to use romaine lettuce. Because uh, you can't eat horseradish. And he's sitting there chewing it up, going, Oh, yeah? He said, Yeah, only if you grind it up and you get 1.1 fluid ounces. And he's just sitting there chomping away at it, you know. I told this story to a friend of mine who was also a Polish Yid. And he says, My, You know how when people make the charosas, they grind the charosas and they eat a piece of apple along with it? My, my grandfather used to do that with the morrow, you know what I mean? He'd be grinding the horseradish and eating it along. Evidently in Poland it was a snack food. So, uh, so they made him tough back there. But anyway, so. Uh, so I am a Polish, but uh, evidently, I, I, to the best of my knowledge, I'm not Hasidish. So, uh, you know, those of you who are looking for the Rebbe, he is downstairs. Um, up here, we're doing something else. I'm not sure what that might be, but whatever it is, I'm so glad that you came to be a part of it. And I especially want to thank Chazak uh, for having me again. This is uh, probably, as I've mentioned before, in, in the years that I started becoming a world-famous speaker, which I am, by the way, and I have to tell people because a lot of people don't know how famous I am. <laughs> it's an occupational hazard, you know, when you're so famous and people don't know it. It's, you know, it's like one of the best-kept secrets, you know. I must have told this story already, but it doesn't matter because a lot of people here are in my age group and you don't remember what I say either, so... <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> when they reach a certain age and you keep meeting new people and sometimes they're family members but um, when I uh, uh, I was on a plane and this little kid kept coming over to me and taking my stuff and after he would take it and eat it or ruin it then his parents would say oh don't bother the man <laughs> this is very nice anyway so he kept it I had nothing left to give him except my boarding pass you know so he takes the boarding pass you know and sucks on it whatever it is you know and the parents say oh don't take his boarding pass he goes Orlovsky because are you the speaker? And I said, yeah. I said, and you write? I said, yeah, I was the columnist for the Hamadiyya. You know, yeah. He goes, and you make tapes? He says, yeah. He goes, wow, you, you know, I always want to come and see you because I, I, I know you live in Sarutskin. And I said, no, I don't. And his wife said, that's Orlewick. <laughs> He goes, oh, you speak also? <laughs> That's already pretty good, you know? 
Rabbi Wine was once uh, at the airport. This woman came over to him and said, you know, I admire you so much. I listen to all of your tapes and I read all your books. It's, it's so wonderful to hear you. He says, thank you. Is Mrs. Fran traveling with you? <laughs> and in classic Rabbi Wine fashion, he goes, no, but when I see her, I'll give her your regards. <laughs> anyway, um, what are we talking about today? I'll tell you what I want to talk about today, because um, I, I've said it over before, and I said it over in other organizations and in other places, because uh, uh, for those of you who were not there at the event, yeah, um, Yaniv, who started Chazak and runs Chazak and raises the money for Chazak and keeps this going, etc., said once when we were here, he says, I sat down and I said, how are we going to bring Mashiach? I, I want to bring Mashiach. And people started laughing. I'll never forget. And he looks around and he goes, I'm not kidding. You know, and it was like, whoa, this guy's for real, you know? And I decided I would start an organization to try to reach out to people who otherwise wouldn't be reached out to in order to be able to bring the Mashiach. And that was my goal. And he started this entire organization and everything that goes with it, that goes along with it. And I, I just thought, wow, that means that every one of us has the ability on some level to look at the world and say, how am I going to bring Mashiach? How am I going to bring the world to its tikkun? And it, it made a deep impression on me, you know, because, uh, you know, I really, I try very hard, but uh, not, not as much as Yeniv, you know, and uh, you, want, you really want to try to do something important in this world. So it reminds me of a story that took place in... Uh, um, shortly after September 11th, as we all know, the Twin Towers went down. And I went to see Rav Bulman Zatzal, and uh, he didn't have a lot of time left. He died a few months later. And it was right after the, the attacks of 9-11, and everybody, of course, was stunned. And I went to him and I said, Rebbe, what is this? And he looks at me and he says, David, this is Gogamogog. This is the end. Don't you realize that? So I said, so what am I supposed to do? By the way, I had gone to Rabbi Shapiro also, and he said the same thing to anybody who would listen. He had an operation today. If everyone could say a tefillah from Moshe ben Rachel, you should have a Rapur Shlema. But uh, he said the same thing. And, uh, you know, so I said to Rabbi Bowman, I said, so what do we do? And he said, the Chazal tell us there are only two things that can protect us during this time. Torah and Chesed. And he looked at me and he said, but in this Tekufa, it's reversed. And the Chesed is even more important than Torah. So that made a profound impression on me, and I certainly have tried, at least in my own life, to do it. And so the topic, you know, I, I've reached the point where, you know, Or Hashem, you know, trust me enough, and, you know, I said, what am I going to talk about? He says, whatever you want, you know. So, uh... That's how they advertise it. I, I just was a scholar in residence in a, in a local synagogue, and uh, he said, uh, introduced each each talk. He says, and now Rabbi Olavsky will give the talk entitled "From 5:30 to 6:30." <laughs> <laughs> he didn't even bother getting titles for me. He said, you know, Rabbi Katz. Uh, someone told me that they were going to hire him to come and speak. I said, could you send us titles? He said. Sure, and he sent a list of 20 titles. And a brilliant title. So he says, what do these mean? He says, whatever you want. I'm going to talk about anything you know, that I want. It doesn't really make a difference what you write for a title. Just find some titles that sound like you enjoy it and put them down. I'm going to talk whatever I want. You, know? you have to be careful with titles sometimes. You know? Sometimes titles... <laughs> My wife always loves that one. You know, when someone puts up a title, Shemitah and Shabbos, is there a connection? Do you really think the guy is going to get there and say, nope? <laughs> Thanks for coming. <laughs> so, they got to be careful with titles. You know? I had the last slot on Shavuos night. It was like 4 o'clock in the morning, you know. And I was falling asleep, and everybody in the room was falling asleep. You're in that place where you're in between two worlds, you know, and, and you're still talking, and you're not really sure. There's not a direct connection between your brain and your mouth at that point. And that's what everybody said. You know, I said, and, and it serves, I don't even know what I was talking about, but it, and it serves as a prism of clarity. And people were nodding, and I go, 
That doesn't mean anything. <laughs> what are you nodding for? Prism of clarity, you know? That woke everybody up. And the next year, the, he entitled my talk Prism of Clarity. <laughs> and more or less said it all, you know? So, uh, so he, he trusts me at this point to talk about whatever I want. And uh, I decided that based on the current situation, because we are in difficult times, yeah? As we all know when we, when we read the news, we're in difficult times. And I will tell you the following, which is not a positive idea, but important to know. It was not this past Asar Bateves, it was the year before. And Chaim Kanievsky was talking about, you know, uh, Asar Bateves, which is really the worst day in Jewish history, according to many people, worse than Tishabov. If Tishbev comes out on Shabbos, we push it off. But if a Sarbateves comes out on Shabbos, he would fast. It doesn't. In our calendar, it comes out on a Friday. And normally you wouldn't fast on a Friday either. But on a Sarbateves, you'd fast on a Friday. And even if it came out on Shabbos, he would fast. That's how serious a Sarbateves is. And, uh, and somehow, the, the context of the discussion was a halakhic discussion. But what he said was, on that a Sarbateves, this is the beginning and we're just going to have Tsaris now until Mashiach. And as each thing would happen, and there were, just take a look in those past two years, and all the things that happened when people would go to Rabbi Chaim he'd say, I told you that we're, ju- we're just in for Tsaris now until the end. Which means that it is time for us to batten down the hatches and get to work to be able to get through this extremely difficult time. How do we do it? And that's why what Bowman told me when the Twin Towers went down. Chesed and Torah, in that order. So I want to speak a little bit about Chesed in order to be able to try to put it into a perspective. Now there's an interesting um, paradox, perhaps. Yeah, quote that. The individual in Jewish history who is most noted for chesed is, of course, Avraham Avinu. The person of Avraham Avinu is also noted for another incredible accomplishment. Namely, he introduced monotheism. Yeah? Is there a connection? Nope. Anyway. (laughs) Mistameh. There probably is a connection, right? The same individual who brings HaKadosh Baruch Hu into the world is also the person of Chesed, right? And when we say the person of Chesed, we mean a person of such outstanding Chesed that it's almost uh, beyond understanding, right? Um, he had a bris mila at 99, you know? We don't appreciate this, for the most part. I don't know if anybody here has, has to have gone through this. Uh, a fellow came to my door once collecting, and I trail people come to your door to collect. I don't know if you have this in America. And uh, you have different people who come and collect. This fellow is a male. And what he does is he finds people in Israel who don't have a bris mila. Usually it's from the former Soviet Union. It's interesting that over Shabbos I met somebody who used to work with the refuseniks, and, and he said to me, he says, they knew what we were doing, you know, and they didn't care about so much about tefillin or about matzah, they, they turned a blind eye. He says, but the one thing they, they were eshla hava is bris mila. They did not want bris mila. I've been speaking about Hanukkah and how the Greeks outlawed bris mila. You know, and he says they were very strict about bris mila. So they're Jews who make aliyah, and they don't have a bris mila. And so he, um, you know, he uh, collects money because you, when you're of a certain age, you, someone doesn't hold you on your lap. You understand? You need an operating room and you need a doctor and you need, you know, a, a crew there. It's about $5,000 for each bris, you know, um, because he says obviously the kupa doesn't cover it because it's not a, seen as a medical thing, right? So, um, so it's a major thing. He convinces people to do it, so he's not going to ask them to pay. So he does the actual mila, he does the actual cutting, but everything else has to be paid for. So, um, uh, so I, I was moved by that. You know, it's an interesting thing, you know, when it comes to tzedakah. Um, where should you give your tzedakah money? 
It was a guy who was a fundraiser for Panovich. And he was working in this particular balabas for a long time until the person reached the point that, you know, he had a good enough relation with him that he asked him, he says, you know, I have some large amount of money that I want to give. Where do you think I should give it? So, <laughs> you, you live for that moment, right? You know? Anyway, so he says, well, uh, let's go to Israel and ask Rav Shach, who's the head of Panovich Yeshiva. So they get on a plane, Fel buys them two first-class tickets, they go to Israel, you know, they get into Rav Shach, and Rav Shach had this tiny little house, you know, a very simple way of living. And he comes in, and he, he says, Rebbe, he says, the man wants to ask a question. He says, I have a large sum of money, where should I give it? Rav Shach says, any place you want. The guy's like, Rebbe, can I talk to you for a minute? <laughs> because there are some people, you know, and, and when you look at the priorities, so some people will give to yeshivas, and some people will give to outreach, and some people are going to build mikvos, and some people are going to give money to people who, who can't buy food. And, you know, and which of these is a priority? They're all priorities. We have so many needs that need to be taken care of, and some will speak to others. I don't know why this idea of this guy seeking out people to get them a brisk meal is spoke to me in a, in a very powerful way. Um, and... Uh, and so I, um, I gave him money, you know, and he would come from time to time, and I gave him money. I, I, was, I was happy to give him money because I, it was a cause that really spoke to me. So one time he says to me, do you want to be a sandic? And one of the person. I said, sure. I'm trying to figure out how to do this exactly. You know? <laughs> so I come down to the medical center, and I, I scrub up. I put on scrubs, you know, and, uh, you know, you got to put on gloves and you got to put on a hat, you know, an old mask, you know, because it's surgery, you know. And you hold the person's head. I held the head for a 16-year-old boy who was getting a bristle. Eight people got bristled that morning. The oldest was a 76-year-old man. And uh, after they all had their bristle, you know, he goes out, and he actually, on the way, he asked me if I'd go to the caterer and pick up the food. You know, there's a caterer who donates the food, so... And he makes a little suda. And he's a chassidisha, so, of course, he made a rakida. And these people all just had a bris mila, so, of course, it was a very slow rakida. <laughs> Nobody was doing any fancy moves out there. <laughs> so, uh, so, he... Uh, you know, it was something to watch, you know? So the Chazal tell us, as difficult as that experience is, and I have to tell you, the amazing thing to me is, this 16-year-old boy, he had a smile on his face. So did the 76-year-old man. They were so happy to be able to finally have a bris. Amazing. I don't know what my attitude would have been under those circumstances, but, uh, you know, this to me was so inspiring. So anyway, um, uh, so Avraham is 99 years old when he has a bris. And it's three days after that, which the Chazal tell us is the most painful time. The older you are, and three days afterwards, is very difficult. Yeah? So Kosh Baruch didn't want to bother him, so he made it supernaturally hot. And nonetheless, Avraham drags himself to the door of the tent, hoping against hope that there might be some guests coming by. And... Uh, you know, Kosh Baruch feels bad, so he sends three malachim disguised as Arabs. Yeah? And these Arabs, who, as the Chazal tell us, worship the dirt on their feet. That's, that's the quality of individual we're dealing with. So he runs over and bows down to them and says, Please, my masters, honor me by coming into my home. Avraham was the greatest theologian of his generation. The Rambam says he had a yeshiva before he even came to Israel with tens of thousands of students. He was a war hero. He defeated the, the four world powers. He was fabulously wealthy. He was uh, you know, a contemporary of kings who invited him in for discussions. And, for, and he's bowing down to these people saying, please, please come into my home. And then he shafts three whole cows. Yeah? So that everyone would get the tip of the tongue. The tongue would be the fastest thing to prepare. 
And evidently, the tip of the tongue is the best place. I assume because it has the most taste buds, so it's the tastiest. I don't know. I always get uncomfortable eating tongue because I always feel like it's tasting me back. So I, I've, I've never, I've never really been able to eat tongue. You know, there's certain things. You know, for me, that's the same thing as lamb. You know, lamb smells like an animal. You know, I, I, a cow doesn't smell like anything. I don't know what it is. You know, but. Uh, it's a, it's a different kind of experience. But anyway, so um, he shafts three whole cows, brings each one of them tip of the tongue, yeah? And, and uh, brings them water to wash their feet, you know? And provides for them and st- serves them, and it's beautiful, right? In the source of him providing food, for 40 years his descendants miraculously got mun from the heavens. In the source of him providing them for shade, for 40 years in the desert, we had the clouds protecting us. In the source of him bringing him water, for 40 years, we had a well that rolled along with us. Yeah? This is, this is the, the power of this chesed. Right? And this is the story. We all know the story. Right? The Medrash gives a little twist on the story. Yeah? At the end of these meals that Avraham used to give freely in his Eishel, Eishel Avraham, at the end, he would pull out the benches. And be like, whoa, what's this? You know? He says, well, now we're going to bench. So he says, oh, I'm not, I'm not going to bench. I don't believe in God. He goes, oh, well, then I assume you must be a customer. Well, let's work out your bill. Three tongues with mustard. Excellent choice. I had to, of course, check three whole cows to get that. You know, um, plus you have to figure in transportation to the desert, you know, and maintenance, service charge, security, you know. Uh, and I know, of course, you had an appetizer of curds and whey, excellent choice. And you know, here's your bill. He's like, I'm not going to pay this. Because you mean you're a thief? He says, No, I'm a guest. Because if you're a guest, a guest says thank you. So well, thank you, thank you, Mr. Avraham. He goes, Wait a second, what are you thanking me for? What do you think I get the food from? You know, you think I, I produced the fruit? It came from the tree. He goes, I will thank the tree. Thank you, Mr. Tree. He says, one second, where'd the tree come from? The ground. All right. Thank you, Mr. Ground. He says, one second, where'd the ground come from? Yeah, the earth came from this big blob of gases. All right, all right. thank you, big blob of gases. <laughs> and where did that come from? Again, <laughs> It's interesting that I, I heard Ray Berkowitz when he quoted this medrash. He says, you see, two things from this medrash. One is, you don't take advantage of people who are in need. Yeah? You don't wait till people are hungry, you know, and then to be able to, to get them. You know, the church has done that throughout history, you know, where if a Jew will agree to convert, you know, that they'd pay them money. And sometimes Jews were in such desperate straits they felt they had no choice, you know. This couple went to the Christians and converted because they felt they had no choice, you know. The next morning, the guy gets up and he starts putting on his trillion. And his wife says, what are you doing with Christians? He goes, oh, yeah, go, you should come. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, it's a difficult thing, you know? Uh, you know. So you don't take advantage of people. First you feed them, then you give them, yeah, and then you can talk about religion. So the second thing is you ask them questions. You challenge them. You get them to ask. This, by the way, is a uniquely Jewish phenomenon. Yeah? I was teaching in Asia Torah on the fellowships, and this girl, when people were telling their different stories, this girl said that she was with a, a fundamentalist Christian group, and she kept asking questions. <clears throat> Until the minister said to her, Sister, the Lord wants you to cut off your head and come to you with his heart. So she says, at that point, I, I started looking into Judaism. And no rabbi ever said that to me. It was the exact opposite experience. I'd ask a question, they'd go, ah, ask better. You can ask like this, like this, like this, and this. Says, yeah, well, I, I, I really don't, ah, that's going to go into rabbi. What about the rabbi? You're going to have to say like this, like this, and this. And then what are you going to do with this, and this, and this? I really don't care that much. And then I'm like this, like this. It's like, oh, but now that brings us to taste. So forget about it, you know what I mean? I'm suffering from information overload, you know? Um, um, Usher, uh, Usher Wade who was a Baptist minister he said he started having questions on Christianity and he went to the, one of the higher ups in the church and he said I used to have those questions he says what did you do 
So they prayed until they went away. So he says, come, let's pray. He says, pray, you know. So can they go away? He says, yeah. He says, at that point, I started looking into Judaism. He says, no rabbi, whenever I came to ask him a question, never said to me, Shia Malois, I'm not here. He said, no, he asked questions. If the one has questions, you see, Abraham engaged people in an intellectual discussion, asked questions. But the ultimate goal of the chesed was to bring them to an understanding of God. So what does that mean? It's a trick. It's a trick, you know. People tell you that the greatest Kirov tool is a chalant. You know, you invite people over, you give them food, you know, and then they, uh, you know... They, they see how beautiful Judaism is because all we do is eat. Yeah, that's the uh, that's the thing. I was talking to a audience once, and I said, you know, we have food that we associate with almost every holiday. You know, I said shvuas, and they go cheesecake. I say Pesach, they say matzah ball soup. I say Rosh Hashanah, they say apple and honey. I say Purim, they say hamantash, and I say Hanukkah, they say latkes. I say Tishvav. They say, the egg with the ashes. <laughs> I said, we even have a food that associated with a fast day. You understand? Everything, everything comes down to food, you know, when it comes to juice. So, so on the one hand, there's the idea of being able to give food. Uh, I, had a, uh, I had a family came over our house um, from Dallas, Texas. And... Um, and uh, nice, nice couple, you know, not not particularly observant, you know. And uh, they come back six months later, and they're like, from? And I was like, wow, what happened? He goes, well, it was because of the Shabbos at your house. I said, wow, I have to pay attention next Shabbos, and maybe I'll become religious too, you know. <laughs> like, you, know? So, you know, I said, what was it? So he tells over the Shabbos, and the amazing thing is that, that he, tells, he tells the story over there. Anybody will listen. You know, he says, they kept feeding us. <laughs> Every time you turn around, they're eating again, they're eating again, you know. It's a different perspective. Somebody was trying to explain this to me, I don't really get it. They say, you know, it's only Jews who use the dining room every week, you know. Non-Jews, the dining room is like for Thanksgiving, you know what I mean? And then they take out the china from the china cabinet, you know what I mean? He says, what we do on a Friday night, that's once a year. (laughs) That's Thanksgiving, you know. People don't... We don't experience that idea, you know? So, okay, so one is the idea of chesed, of being able to give the food, but it's more than that. Abraham was a monotheist. So that you appreciate this, I had a student in uh, Ursamach who was a sociology major, and he says, when they were studying religion, they said, all religions are copycats. And you can watch the development of religion from North America to Central America to South America and how they developed along the way. And the entire world was polytheistic. North America, South America, Europe, Asia, Africa, Australia, the Polynesian Islands, everybody was polytheistic. And comes along Avraham with this idea that there's one God. That was so revolutionary, it came from no place. And his professor who was secular, teaching a secular class in a secular university, said, there is no monotheist today who did not get it from Abraham. Because whether you're a Christian or a Muslim, whatever, they all trace it back to Abraham, who figured this out on his own. There is one God. And said Abraham, if there's one God, so why do you create the world? Now understand the difference when we say this. Shema Yisrael, Hashem HaKen, Hashem Right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. First of all, who sticks an O in the middle of a sentence? I've never figured that out. <laughs> o Israel. What are we, Irish? <laughs> anyway, O Israel. Yeah, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. So I asked people, what does that mean? Because, you know, there's one God as opposed to 10, 50, 20. Uh, I said, okay, we're in the year 2015, and i got to remind you not to worship idols. You know, because you might see a totem pole and decide to bow down to it, so it's a good thing. Oh, Hashem Echad, no, it's not. That's not what Echad means, right? Uh, Rashi says, it should have said, by Vayvoke Yom Rishon, the first day of creation. Instead it says Yom Echad. Why? Because there was nothing but God. God was alone in the universe. Echad means there's nothing else. The best word in English for Echad is 
infinity. God is everything. Yeah? Echad, Yochid, Achdus. Every God is everything. Which is basically what we're saying is here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. There is only one God, He has everything. If that's the case, and that's what I've figured out, why did He create the world? So people say, well, he was lonely. He can't be lonely. He's infinite. He's not missing anything. It was an experiment. It can't be an experiment. He's all-knowing. He already knows the answer. Yeah? What's the purpose? Why would he make the world? Whatever reason he made the world could not have been for him because he's not missing anything. He created the world for us. And when Avraham figured that out, he realized that the world was an act of chesed. A total act of kindness. And therefore, he was going to introduce God to the world through chesed. And by doing chesed, he was able to show people what God is. And therefore, whenever the Jewish people are able to introduce this chesed to the world, it's not just that they see, well, these are nice people. They see through it that it's God. Guys traveling, uh, from guys traveling up to the mountains, he's on uh, Route 17, and he sees a car by the side of the road, a guy with a yarmulke, and uh, the car stopped. He pulls over, another car pulls over. Says the guy, "What's the problem? Because I have a flat tire. I don't know how to change it." He goes, oh, "We'll help you out." So they find the spare, they crank it up, you know, they change the tire, you know. When they're all done, they come over to the guy, and they see he's wearing a cross. He says, why are you wearing a cross? He goes, because I'm Christian. He says, why are you wearing a yarmulke? He says, what? On your hand. He goes, I don't know. When I first started driving, my mother gave this to me. She said, keep it in the glove compartment. If you ever break down, put it on. People will stop and help you. (laughs) She obviously didn't think the cross would get anybody to come and help her. They knew if you put on a yarmulke, then people were going to come and stop and help you. And between me and you, even if it wasn't that, people would stop and help them. You know? It was a from guy in Manhattan. He sees a limousine. He's got a flat tire. You know? And uh, the driver's standing outside. He says, what's the problem? He goes, I got a flat. I don't, I don't fix cars. I called the AAA. He says, they'll take him an hour. Come on, I'll teach you how to fix a flat. This has got to be a moment where an Orthodox Jew is teaching a limo driver how to fix a flat. You know? <laughs> they find the spare. He jacks it up. He shows him what to do. Take off the, the bolts and everything. And he puts it on. He fixes it. When he's all done, you know, gets ready to go, and the window goes down, and uh, the fellow says, uh, that was so nice of you, I want to give you something. He says, sir, I'm an Orthodox Jew. This is called a chesed. That's what we do. We do kindness. You know, I'm, thank you for the opportunity. So the guy says, you're an Orthodox Jew? He says, let me send your wife flowers for Shabbos. Knew something. Now, I can be a tzaddik on my account, but not for my wife. You understand? You know? So he says, fine, gives him his address. That Friday, a bouquet comes, but ridiculous. Like, like a, one of those fancy wedding bouquets, you know, really over the top. And there's a little card inside. It says, thank you for your kindness, Donald Trump. <laughs> P.S. I paid off your mortgage. <laughs> The next day, Jews were looking for limousines. <laughs> People were actually giving them flat tires. You know? <laughs> now, that wasn't the reason he did it. He didn't do it to, to, to get that. You know, it is an eyesight benefit, you know. He did the chesed because by doing the chesed, we bring HaKadosh Baruch Hu into the world. People see us and we're able to make a transformation in the world by doing chesed. And it's something that's so simple. You know, there are a lot of things that are not within our control. There's a lot of things that we can't do. I, I used to say this when I was a kid. You know, there's, there's certain, you know, incredibly inspiring stories that I can't possibly even relate to. They have these people come and speak before Shoshana, you know, because I was, you know, uh, you know, into Buddhism, I was traveling the world, I fell off of a mountain, you know, uh, I should have died, I broke every bone in my body, you know, and, uh, you know, I went blind, I lost, they amputated my arms and legs, you know, and then I had nothing to do except think about Judaism, and, and I suddenly realized that this was real true, you know, and I grew back my arms and legs, and I could see, yeah, yeah, I went 
to yeshiva, and today I'm a Rosh Yeshiva. You know, like, what am I supposed to do with a story like that? <laughs> what do you What do you expect people to do? You know, it's so out of what we can expect. You know, and this guy was inspired, and he started a hospital. Was a, the Klausenberger Rebbe survived the Holocaust. He built, he built, uh, you know, in Netanya, he built a hospital, he built schools, he built institutions. You know, M- most of us are, are not going to be that, you know, that forthright. Most of, most of us are going to have moments in our lives where we're going to make decisions whether or not we're going to touch somebody's life. I spoke at a, uh, I was the long director of NCSY for nine years. I spoke last night at, a, at an event. And, I, and I, I, I told the story, you know, about um, this girl who came from an anti-religious home. She just came to a Shabbaton because her friends were coming. And a girl advisor said to her, I like your hair. I've tried this with boys. It doesn't work quite the same way. <laughs> So this girl, I like your hair. This is evidently very important to women. It's a billion-dollar industry, you know what I mean? I like your hair. And from that, she suddenly opened up. They started having discussions. She came to her house for Shabbos. Today, she's married to a rov. You know? And, and, and it turned around from nothing other than the fact that somebody was willing to say something nice. I spoke this morning in YCQ. And Landisman told me that he made a shidduch with a, another advisor from NCSY, you know, a guy by the name of Steve Nyman. And he says, and at the Ufruf, he says, a kid comes over to him and says, you know you changed my life. He says, I did? He says, yeah, you were evidently trying to explain to me the content of Shavisi Hashem and Nigdi Talmud. I was a kid, you know, I didn't know anything. And, and you sat next to me during Davin and you say, say this as if God was really standing right in front of you. Just imagine that. He says, and from that point onwards, every time I dive in, I think of what you said to me, and I think of, you know, uh, I think of you, and I, and I think of it all over again. Just a nice word. You, you know how you can just say a nice word? Chanak Teller wrote a book. It's a small word after all. And he gives in the introduction a story that happened with him. Yeah? It was a mikvah somewhere around Shmuel, Navi, Erev Rosh Hashanah. Packed. Packed. You know? Um, women don't necessarily understand this because when women go to the mikvah, you know, they get a private room and they get a this, you know, that. By men, it's a communal event, you know. So uh, it was tremendously crowded, Erev Rosh Hashanah. Somebody gave the expression, it was bumper to bumper, you know what I mean? It was not packed, yeah. And in Israel, everybody, the minig is that people go on Asherah. You know, I was here at a mikvah in America. I see everybody wears robes. You know, but there, it's, it's everyone just you know goes as they are. Yeah, and um, and this one guy is wearing a bathrobe. It was very unusual. Yeah, but okay. It was very busy. It's Rosh Hashanah. Nobody really has time. And he takes off his robe and gets into the water. And he's getting up. He has his robe and he drops it. And the whole place goes silent. Because he had an extremely obscene tattoo on his chest. It was obviously about Shuva, and he had this incredibly obscene. You know, that's all he would say. I have. I know people ask me afterwards, what was it exactly? I really don't know. I have no more information. Let your imagination run wild. I don't know. But it was enough to silence the entire mikvah. Now, can you imagine how this guy feels? And this old man shuffles over to him and he says, I also have a tattoo. And he says, you went through your Holocaust and I went through my Holocaust and thank God we both made it. We should have a good year. And everybody just went back to what they were doing and he put on his robe and he was able to leave. And it was one moment where a person saw somebody who was in trouble and you make a decision. Right? Um, I was walking into my building and a neighbor says to me, David! I say, no, he's Israeli. Yeah, Olavsky's called me, uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, Americans call me David, you know. But Israelis call me David. David! says, when I see your smile, it gives me a reason to live. So I, I thought that was all over the top, you know. I saw my smile, never gave me a reason to live, you know. So I thought it was pretty funny. I mentioned it to a neighbor, and he says, oh, I guess you don't know. I said, why? Because he tried to kill himself yesterday. He doused himself with gasoline. They got there as he was about to light the match. When he tells you he sees a smiling face and it gives him a reason to live, he means it. 
I was in a yeshiva once where they were doing a fundraising video and they said, we try to get a lot of smiling faces because when people see smiling faces, they want to give more money. They're more generous. Because it makes you happy. You know it yourself. You see people walk around, they look miserable, you know. And you're like, oh, good morning. What's good about it? You know? Okay, you know. And you see somebody smiles and gives you a good morning, you know. It changes your day. It changes your day, you know. Rabbi Shul Salanta said, your face is a Rishisa Rabin. Your face is a public therapist. You know, when people see you, you have to decide. Am I going to make the effort to make the world a better place by doing nothing else than giving someone a smile that could change their whole day? An amazing concept. But it's something that, you know, a person has to be conscious of. It doesn't come easily. Rosh Shapiro, and as I mentioned, should have before Shlema. So he, um, I didn't know him before he, his daughter died. He had a daughter who um, was either a teenager or in her twenties, and she died. She had an illness. He moved to America to get her treatment. He he was davening. He was. They, they say after she died, a part of him died, and and he was never the same. So um, he came back to bury her. And as he's coming back from the gravesite, he's broken, literally broken. He's bent over and he's broken, and and uh, and he's about to get in the car, and he sees somebody standing off to the side, and he picks himself up, and he puts on a smile, and he walks over to this young man and he talks to him for a minute, and then he turns back, and the tears begin to flow, and he gets into the car. So the people who were with him couldn't believe it. They said, Rebbe, what was that? He says, he's a chassan and he's getting married tonight. And I didn't want him to think that I wasn't happy for him. So I can focus on the fact that I'm in pain, or I can focus on the fact that there's somebody here who needs a smile and needs a kind word. You know? I had a bad day. I had a bad day. Avravino had ten tests. What was the last test? According to most of the Rishonim, the last test was the Akedas Yitzchak, where he had to take his own son up and sacrifice him. Except for Rabbeinu Yonah. Rabbeinu Yonah says, you know what the last test was? The last test was buying the kever for Sarah, from Ephraim. That's the last test? That's the hardest test? Says with Desla, yes. Because after you survived the Akedah, you almost lost your son. And you come home so relieved and you find your wife dead. And now I have to buy a grave for her and I'm dealing with this liar Ephraim who's trying to cheat me. Yeah? And instead of losing it and saying, how dare you treat me this way? You know who I am? He maintains himself. That's the hardest thing. Because throughout life we're going to have opportunities to share a kind word, to give a smile, to give a hello. And we think, it doesn't make a difference. It doesn't make a difference. I say something, I don't say something. It's a kindness that we can do easily, and there are so many easy chasodim that come around. I was in America with my son. He was 12 years old, coming from Israel. We got separated in a park. And uh, he went up to people, went up to strangers, and said, can I borrow your cell phone to call my father? They were like, No. They were, like, they were like a guest, you know. So he's got to steal my phone, run away, some kid, you know what I mean? You see the kids wearing a yarmulke, he doesn't, he doesn't look... No, anyway. But uh, he does have a yarmulke, you know what I'm saying? And he finally he went into a store and the woman said, well, give me the number and I'll call. And that, you know what I mean? You know? So he says, I don't understand. In Israel, you go to anybody, you say, can I borrow yourself? And of course, of course. I said, that's because you're taking for granted chesed. I'm, I'm going in a week to Spain. Uh, every Thanksgiving I, I go to uh, Europe with uh, Nasibo's tours. And uh, we've been to Greece, we've been to Italy, we've been to Prague, we've gone to Spain. And um, it's, a, it's, it's a fascinating experience for me because I would never go anywhere. But uh, they, they hire me to go on this tour. And I said, why? I'm not Pesach Krona. I'm not doing a lot of wine. I'm not a historian. You know, What do you want me for? You know, He said, no, we have people to do that. And he says, but if people see your picture on the air, they know they're going to have a good time. <laughs> and I said, 
that I can do, you know? <laughs> so I, you know, like, I, I, I never agreed to do crack out. I'm not doing Holocaust sites and stuff like that, you know? I'm not sitting on some bus for eight hours, you know? So we stay in a very, very fancy hotel, and, and he flies in a chef from its show, and they make all the food fresh, you know? And we have lots, lots of time for shopping, you know? And that's my idea of, like, a really spiritually uplifting tour of Europe, you know? <laughs> So I, but it gives me an insight in, into areas in the world where I never otherwise would go, you know. Um, so it was an interesting thing. Daniel Barron, who comes along, he's the actual historian, and he knows everything, and he does the research, and he does all the work, and I just stand and smile. But um, so he asked me a kasha, which was a very interesting thing. Now, when we were in Italy, there were beggars. And the beggars are on their knees with their heads bowed and their hands extended like this for hours. And it's just an amazing thing. And he says to me, why do they do that? I said, that's because you're a Jew. Do you know how beggars in Israel do it? No, no, it's stuck, it's stuck, it's stuck. <laughs> what do you think? I'm a poor schnook and I, I'm a quality poor guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, it's a different thing. I was giving away old clothes, you know, and I, I, I brought it from one gabbat to the other. They wouldn't take it. They said, I can't give this to somebody to wear, you know. They pick up a jacket and say, Look at this. I can't ask somebody to wear this. I said, good, that's my jacket. I just took it off to carry in the boxes, you know. <laughs> what, what I was wearing wasn't good enough for a poor guy. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I said, I said, that's your idea of stucca. Why? Because you're a Jew. And a Jew, they understand, stucca is a mitzvah, and it's a chesed, and it's part of our national identity. The Gemara says... How do you know who's a, a Jew who's descended from Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov? And how do you know who came along out of Egypt with the heir of Rav? He says, Jews have three qualities. Baishonim, Rachmanim, and Gomez Chasodim. Baishonim, they, they experience shame. They get, they get embarrassed, you know? What they call Jewish guilt. You know what I mean? They feel bad. They feel bad. They have a conscience. Rachmanim, they have a certain mercy. I was talking with somebody who works in a care organization with kids who go off there. He says to me, it's easier to bring back a boy than a girl. He says, because to make it on the street when you're a boy, you have to be able to take a razor and slice up somebody's face. There's an Italian kid, a Puerto Rican kid, a, you know, a, you know a, these kids, they, they can do it. A Jew can't do that. They just can't do it. It's just not in them. You know? It was... Uh, Jackie Mason once said, a Jew doesn't make a good mugger. Can't go up to somebody and say, give me all your money. They say, how much you got? <laughs> Let's work something out. <laughs> but Rahmanim, uh, there's, a, there's a natural you know, kindness. And they're gomli chasadim. They're kind, they're charitable people. I don't remember the exact event, um, but uh, there was some sort of uh, attack and some, it was either a, a, a police officer or a soldier, I don't remember what, had done some tremendous act of bravery and saved lives. And so all around the country, they got together to raise money for the family. And I think all around the country, together they raised like $5,000 for this family. That same week, a guy is sitting on an LL flight next to this Israeli guy with his son. And he says to him, so why are you going to America? He says, my son is critically ill. He needs an operation. They don't have it in Israel. I have to get it in America. He says, do you have insurance? He says, no, and the insurance in Israel won't cover it. He says, well, how much is the operation? He says, $100,000. He says, what are you going to do? He says, I don't know. But I've got to save my son's life. When I get to America, I'll contact organizations. I'll see what I can do. I just don't know. And I said, excuse me. He walks up the flying and across and back down to the back of the plane and across. It comes back to the guy with $100,000. Gomli Chasodim. You understand? A Jew hears a story. This guy's going to die. What are you going to do? I would sit back. You know? How, how could it be? How could it be? That's the, 
That's the national character of the Jewish people. And uh, I remember when I spoke here last time, an organization that asks Jews to donate kidneys to people who spoke. And the fellow said that the Jewish community has the highest rate of kidney donation of any community in America. You know, by, by far and large. You know, because chasadim. Uh, That's where we are now. That's where we are in history. And what we have to do, we have to ask ourselves, we have to say is, what can I do to bring HaKadosh Baruch Hu into the world by introducing the Midas HaChesed? And, and everybody has opportunities for Chesed. Everybody. Sometimes they're so small, you don't even appreciate them. So I mentioned already giving a smile and giving a hello. You know, that's fine. Um, uh, Sometimes people, you know, buy uh, a box of tissues in a public place where they don't have tissues. You know, they don't always, not every place provides you with tissues. Puts it in, mutalakol. I knew a guy who used to go and buy milk for the coffee. And just write on it, mutalakol, that there should be, there should be milk. People should have something. You know? There, there are so many opportunities that we have within the course of a day you know, to make sure that people are able to get the things that they need. And like I say, it's not big dramatic things. It's little things. I've told this story in the past, but it's, uh, it's, it's one that's so close to my heart. I, I'll maybe give an introduction to it. I told this story over, and I told it over more than once, but this woman calls me up and she says, I have an organization in Beit Shemesh, I'd like you to come and speak. I said, sure. So she says, um, I, I want to tell you why it's important for me that you come and speak. This entire organization exists only in your schools. Because I heard you tell this story, and uh, I decided to start an organization. I'll tell you about that in a minute. I'll tell you about the story. This woman comes over to me after I spoke once on this idea how we can do little chasadim and make a change in the world. And she says to me, you know what? I want to change the world. I knew this woman. She had a lot going on. She was you know, a bunch of little kids. And I said, listen, invest in your family. Invest in your kids. That's the greatest chesed you could do. Let's never do chesed at the expense of our family. She says, no, it won't come at the expense of my family. But I want to do something that I know is going to change the world. I said, okay, you know, uh, what's, what skills do you have? Said, None, really. What's your degree in? I don't have a degree. Well, is there anything you do that's special? She says, I bake. I said, okay, let's talk tomorrow about how we're going to bake the world into a better place. I really didn't know what to tell her. So she calls me the next day and she says, I figured it out. It's a school for special children in my neighborhood and I make really great cupcakes. I'm going to make them cupcakes once a month. It's beautiful. She calls me after Rosh Chodesh. She says, oh, the Menachel said, you don't know what you did. These are kids who don't hear very well, don't see very well, don't move very well. The one thing that works for all of them is their sense of taste. You made 50 children whose lives are very hard, very sweet. Thank you. I see it six months later. I said, how's the dog? She says, I'm starting a website. I said, I'm not that happy, but you bake cupcakes. Why do you need a website? <laughs> I don't think you can email them. Maybe, maybe if there's a 3D printer on the other side or something. I, I, you know, what do you need a website? She says... Because people started calling from other schools when they heard what I was doing, and they said, could you make a homemade treat for my kids, too? And I said, listen, I can't make uh, hundreds of cupcakes, but I've got friends who also bake. And so, you know, we'll call this woman, call that woman, and she started putting it together. And she says, this way I'm coordinating all the women with all the schools so that if anybody is missing, I can fill in the, I can fill in the lack. And... And when I hung up the phone, I was so moved because that's what I'm talking about. It's ordinary people who say, I want to make the world a better place. I don't have any special powers. I don't have a lot of money. Something small that I can do. So this woman calls me up from Beishama. She says, I heard you tell this story. And I said, yeah, I could do something too. And I realized that there were callers who were getting married who didn't have money. 
And there are organizations that will give them money to help them make the wedding. He says, but you know, they need pots and pans. They need dish towels. They need, uh, you know, linen. And no one's buying this for them. So what did she do? She raised money, and she got a warehouse. And she either bought or got people to donate everything that a kala would need to outfit a house. And when they find a kala, they check out to make sure that it's legit. She comes in to the, to the, to the warehouse and goes shopping. She buys her pots. doesn't pay anything for it. She gets her pots. She gets her linens. She gets her towels. She gets, uh, you know, everything that you need to set up a house. And she said, and I only started this organization because of what you said. So when I went down to the speak, I said, I would like to take credit for this entire organization. Because <laughs> I did the only thing I know how to do, which is talk. <laughs> but when, when you have a chesed, and I want you to know, by the way, you know, it's kind of ironic. You know one of the greatest chesed you can do? Listen. The person says, I, I don't even know how to talk. You don't have to talk. You know how to listen? You know? You know how, how people are dying to have somebody to talk to? You know? And everybody's busy. Everybody's busy. And if I take out time just to sit and speak to somebody, you know? My wife was on the phone with somebody for hours, you know? And I was like, how do you do this? You know, you got a bunch of little kids you got to think. It's a chesed that I can do easily. You know? I can listen to somebody. I can give somebody an ear. You know? We're at the end of time. This is what Chaim Kanievsky tells us. This is what better people than me say. We're in a position when Klai Yisrael is in Cyrus. And as Rav told me at 9-11, the only things that's going to carry us through Yomos Mashiach is Torah and Chesed, only we have to reverse the order. It, chesed are little things. It's little things that make a difference. Unless you think eh, that it's so small, I want to I leave you with an unbelievable idea from the Alta of Slobodka. Life is rain. If you don't have any rain, you're in serious trouble. Southern California had a drought. You know, they were, they were in bad shape. They're placed in a world where they have droughts. Forget about it. There's no food. In Israel, there was a time they were going to try to figure out, put in a pipeline from Turkey, you know, bring in icebergs, something to get water. They built desalination plants. They didn't have rain for a bunch of years. Forget about it. It's a terrible thing. So when we say Tfilah's Geshem, on Shemini Atzeres, this Tfilah is a Tfilah where we're not just asking for rain, we're asking for life itself. So needless to say, we're going to pull out all the heavy guns, says the Alp of Slavatka. So we say, Akash Baruch Hu, Remember how Yaakov Avinu fought with the Malach. We say, remember how Avraham, you know, ran around when he was sick to do those chesed for the Malachim. Remember how Yitzchak was willing to give up his life. And we go down, the, remember Kriyas Yamsuf, the greatest moments of Jewish history. And then we say, remember how Yaakov rolled the rock off the well, this week's parasha, in order to be able to give water to the sheep. Ask the altar. I understand. You know, Kriyas Yamsuf, Akedis Yitzchak. These are the greatest moments of Jewish history. Rashi says that he was so strong that for him to remove the rock was like taking a cork off a bottle. Unscrewing a bottle cap. He says, and who is he doing it for? For his uncle's sheep, who he was about to come and mooch off of, because he didn't have any money or anything, he was just going to come and live with his uncle. And who is he doing it for? Rachel, who already saw in Ruach HaKodesh he was going to marry and have children with, and he immediately loved her. He was doing it for a woman he loves, for an uncle that he's going to be sponging off of, and it was such a small thing. And we're turning around 3,700 years later and asking God to grant us life itself? Says the altar. Now I hope you appreciate a chesed. Because when somebody says, you know, could you pass me the milk? Could you give me that soda? And you say, sure. 
Yeah? Thousands of years from now, your descendants can ask for life itself in the schus of that chesed. That's the power of a chesed. Every little kindness that you do has cosmic consequences, and maybe that's the idea that we should really end with. We see a world where acts of cruelty take place. How is that possible? It's only because we've made the world into a cruel place. If you pollute the water and the air, don't, don't complain that it's hard for you to drink water or breathe, because you messed it up. If we make the world into a cruel place, don't be surprised at the little cruelties of life. And every time you do a chesed, you change the world into a nice place. You change the world into a place of chesed. And we're lucky because Rashi tells us that every good thing we do is worth 500 times a bad thing that we do. You know? So every little chesed, and like I say, it could be nothing more than a smile or a hello. It could be, it could be nothing more than, than a little consideration, listening to somebody who wants to talk to you. You know, helping somebody out. And chesed applies to our own family. It applies to rich people and poor people. It's not like tzedakah. Anybody you can do a chesed for. And every time you do, you make the world into a better place. You make the world into a place where HaKadosh Baruch Hu's midas HaChesed can come into the world. And the world can be a place where people feel, wow, there's love, there's kindness, this is a good place. And that's the protection that will take us through the difficult Jemosa Mashiach, Amir Hashem.